Hello and welcome to the inaugural episode of the Heathen History Podcast. I'm Lauren Crow, and with me is my brother. My name's Ben Wagoner. And uh, we are here to talk about history. Specifically, we're going to talk about the modern heathen movement, how it came about, the good, the bad, the ugly, the really ugly, and just kind of help people understand how we got to where we are today. So today's topic is about one of the earliest movements in the 1930s. And Ben, what is that movement? Well, it's the First Anglican Church of Odin, which was founded in Australia beginning about 1934 by a lawyer by the name of Alexander Rudd Mills, whose pen name, by the way, was Tasman Forth because he was uh, from Tasmania, in fact. He was a Tasmaniac, as they say. Tasman Fourth sounds like it should be like an AOL screen name. Hmm. Okay. Well, I don't think they had AOL back then. Xbox Live, something like that. All right. But he started kind of the first organized Mm -hmm. heathen group. The organized Norse, it's hard to say. It was more Anglo, it was using Norse names, but he Mm -hmm. was super focused on being British. So it's a little confusing, but really it was kind of the first pagan-ish Norse-focused organized Well, the first in the English-speaking world. That we know of. Right. The Germans had been doing this sort of thing, various movements within Germany as early as um, 1907. A German guy named Ludwig Fachenkrug was calling for the revival of Germanic paganism. And in 1916, he founded a movement called the GGG, which is uh, Germanische Glaubensgemeinschaft. I'm so glad I have you to pronounce these things because I couldn't do it. (laughs) A Germanic belief society. And there were various other movements, some of them Nazi-adjacent and some of them perhaps not so much. It was a fairly diverse time. But certainly in the English-speaking world, Rudd Mills's Anglican Church of Odin was the first organized movement that tried to bring back in a somewhat screwball way the ancient religion of our noble forebears and all that. So let's talk a minute about the Anglican Church and the spelling of Anglican. Okay. it's just... It's precious. Mm -hmm. There's really only way to put it. It is spelled A-N-G-L-E-C-Y-N. Well, C-Y-N is the Old English spelling of kin. So it's the kin of the Angles, as in the Angles and Saxons and and all that. I would say it was a little obtuse. Oh, you're really acute right now. Thank you. Right. Uh, Sorry about that, folks. Um, Yeah, it's clearly supposed to be pronounced Anglican. So if somebody asks you what church you go to, you go to the Anglican church. But the spelling suggests that it has nothing to do with, you know, the Episcopal church, as they're called in this country but in fact is about being the kin of the Angles, the people who gave their name to England, Angle Land. And Mills was very, very focused on British identity. Yes. Very, very proud to be British, but definitely did not feel that it was Australia's duty to support Britain in the run-up to World War II. Right. He got involved with a group that was called the Australia First Movement that wanted to keep Australia out of World War II. So let's back up just a little bit and talk about basically Mills's history. He was from Tasmania. Mm-hmm. He moved to Victoria around 1910, went to Melbourne University Law School, and he was admitted to the bar. So he was a legit lawyer. But I think the interesting part here is, you know, his trip to Europe. Because mm-hmm. I feel like this trip to Europe, when he went to Europe in 1931, that's where a lot mm-hmm. of this catalyst was, 
where he, you know, it seems like he came back from this and all of a sudden he's starting this church and he's gung-ho mm-hmm. about this British identity. Right. We know that in England, he actually met some leading fascists, including Oswald Mosley, who was leading this group called the British Union of Fascists, the Buff, I guess. They'll actually come back in some later issues. Uh, they're probably best known for a uh, riot in Cable Street between uh, marchers supporting the BUF and marchers supporting a um, more, well, anti-fascist approach. Cable Street is still, you know, one of the great moments in anti-fascist yeah. history. By the way, Antifa's nothing new. Mm-hmm. That's been All around right. for a long time. Mm-hmm. He apparently tried to found a group that he originally called the Moot of the Anglekin Body. Exactly what came of that, nobody seems to know. There doesn't seem to be a lot of documentation of it. And then he went to Germany for a while, and he actually walked right into the Brown House, which was the, you know, Hitler's office, and uh, walked into Hitler's office and had a meeting with him and tried to give him a copy of his book. Hitler was not particularly interested He complained later that he couldn't get the Führer to listen to uh, what he had to say. But he hung out with Erich Ludendorff, who'd been a victorious general in World War I. They'd founded an Odinist society called the Tannenbergbund. And we know that Mills also was influenced by Vito List, who was an author, writer of historical novels and plays, and mystic, who'd had this vision of an 18-rune version of the Futhark called the Armanen Runes. <laughs> and we have, a, we have a long history about the Armanen Runes here, but mm-hmm. uh, yeah... The Armanen runes are very... Yeah, yeah. I won't tell the whole story, but we talked to somebody once who was very enthusiastic about runes, and he'd done research and found out that they were used all over the world because he'd discovered the Armenian runes. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's mm. fun times. Fun time. Yeah, yeah, good time. That. Um, and, I, you know, I did find that, you know, he, he really got involved with Ludendorff, but then he and Ludendorff broke up because mm-hmm. they didn't agree on, on uh, philosophical grounds. And I also want to point something out here mm-hmm. that a lot of the information I got on his biography comes from the Odenic Rite, mm-hmm. which is a non-inclusive, uh, racist, mm-hmm. heathen organization. And also, as of last year, the Austrian Folk Assembly celebrates his birthday as a feast day. Oh, I did not know that. So this is a uh, this is a person who. He's a hero to some. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Kind of a moron to others. Mm-hmm. So he goes back to Australia after this Europe trip. Mm-hmm. And he established, so in 1934, he goes and he establishes the Anglican Church of Odin. And then in 35, he also founds the British Australian Racial Body, mm-hmm. which these weren't people weren't very good at names. Right. I, well, I'm just going to put that out there. Somewhere in this mix, I forget exactly when, uh, he briefly published a newspaper called The Angle. Yes. Insert jokes about acute and obtuse. And uh, ended up coming out with two issues of another newspaper that was actually called The National Socialist mm-hmm. and had a swastika on the front page. Like you do. And was full of ramblings about Aryans and Jews and the threat that uh, Jews pose to society and all right-thinking people and things like that. So I have no problem calling Mills a Nazi. I try not to use that word lightly. Uh, There's lots of ways to be disagreeable without actually being a Nazi, but Mills was telegraphing pretty damn loudly where his sympathies lay. 
I mean, if you're publishing a newspaper called the National Socialist and it has a swastika on there, I mean, if it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's probably a Nazi duck. Well, and he was also writing for the publicist, which was a described itself as for national socialism and for Aryanism and against Semitism. I mean, listen, Mm -hmm. he may not have self-identified as a Nazi, Mm -hmm. but dude was, if not a Nazi, at least Nazi adjacent. He looked like a duck and quacked like a duck. And by the way, the best book on the subject, uh, I'll put in a plug for a book by a guy named David Bird uh, Mm -hmm. called Nazi Dreamtime which makes me start humming a hollow note song in my head, but that's neither here nor there. Bird actually reproduces the first page of one of the surviving issues of Mills's newspaper, The National Socialist. So, I mean, if you're sufficiently motivated, you can see this for yourself. And we will have a link to that along with all the other things that we cite in the notes, the show notes, so that you can go and check that out yourself. So, during this time period is also when he wrote his, like, his epic book. Mm-hmm. And that is called The Odinist Religion, Overcoming Jewish Christianity. Right. And Ben actually has a copy. Actually, I have his other epic book. Oh, his other epic book. Yeah. He wrote- I have... We have copies, though. Ben actually... Was that one of the ones you ordered and had sent from... Scans sent from Australia? Some of this was sent from Australia, but then I was able to get an actual copy on my hands through interlibrary loan. Thank you, all librarians everywhere. Yes. And uh, I'll hold it up right here so you can see it. Yeah. This Wait, that's a that's a microphone, right? Yeah. They can't sorry. they can't see it. No. Okay. Well, I'll riffle the pages. Yeah, um, I'll, I'll take a picture and we'll put it on uh, Twitter. Okay. All right. Uh, and I'm riffling the pages so you can hear that I have, in fact, an yes. actual book in my hands, and it's called the first guidebook to the Anglican Church of Odin, containing some of the chief rites of the church and some hymns for the use of the church. With reference to the making and appointing of officers, scalds, sagamen, thulers, spellmen, and henchmen. Henchmen. That 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 doesn't sound Nazi at all. Mm-hmm. I, 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 don't, I don't know. I could, you know. Why? Yes, I'm a I'm a henchman in the local Anglican Church of Odin. Do we need henchmen? Um, Our Cambridge doesn't have henchmen. Well, we, we don't really hench all that often. It's true. If, if we seriously got into henching, we, uh, might, we might need... need yeah, yeah. And hench women. I'll, I'll just put oh, that out Oh, of course. Here. We would take hench women. Well, we're in, it should be gender neutral. Just henchers. Yes. Henchers. Henchers. There we go. Hench people. Mm-hmm. So I have in front of me his work here, the Odinist Religion Overcoming Jewish Christianity. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting in how much this reads like a lot of the folkish stuff that's put out today. And I'm going to be honest with you, some of this sounds like some of the angry stuff that I said when I got out of Christianity. Not Mm -hmm. the racist Jewish stuff, but Mm -hmm. the Christianity is the basis of our culture has failed. Uh, See ancient Rome, Spain, United of America, and other nations. It fails, too, in other national aspects. Also, Odinism shows the great one is just and good, not as mean and bloodthirsty. So, theologically, this Mm -hmm. is fascinating in a train wreck kind of way. I would say theologically, it doesn't, it's not really that similar to what most heathens I know today practice. Mm-hmm. It's very monotheistic almost. It's, he basically says that Odin is, the quote is, that of the great one which man can know. Basically, there is one God. Odin is the part of that great God that humanity is able to conceive of. And I guess the rest is just infinite and unknowable and completely transcendent. The Thor is a sort of personification of Odin's power, 
and then the sort of collective divine image in all of humanity is called the Balder. And there's a goddess in there somewhere because Odin is married to somebody named Frega, which kind of neatly solves the question of whether Frigg and Freya might be the same or different. Evidently, yes. they're both Frega. Frega. F-R-E-Y-G-A. Frega. That sounds like some sort of Italian dish. Right. In the first guidebook to the Anglican Church of Odin, I haven't yet found any places where he directly quotes the Anglican Book of Common Prayer, which I assume is what he would have grown up with. Right. But the language is very Episcopal, very Anglican hymnal sort of sort of thing. It's funny. I actually shared that very short one that I have the PDF of, uh, First Guidebook to the Anglican Church of Odin. It's a little eight-page pamphlet. Uh, it's basically an order of service. I actually shared this with a friend of mine who mm -hmm. was raised, as we would call it in the United States, Episcopalian, mm -hmm. and had him read it. He's like, he kind of agreed with me when I was reading it. It feels like the common book of prayer, put it in a blender, mm -hmm. took out God and Jesus, put in Odin and Thor, and spat it back out into a book. Mm -hmm. It very much does read like. Mm -hmm. And I find it interesting that it opens with a whole bunch of uh, quotes from Christians. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Their book of common prayer opens with like, Saga, Saga, Havamal, Edda, Shakespeare, Drake, Cromwell, Newton, Locke. Yeah, there's reference to great heroes of the English race, the only woman of which I believe is Florence Nightingale. But, you know, well, you know, she does deserve yeah. remembrance with honor because she was the founder of modern nursing, but maybe not this way. Yeah, I just feel bad. Like, she should not get lumped into this. Right. Well, on page 63, uh, he's actually got a list of Ten Commandments, which are supposed to be said during the morning service on each alternate Sunday at the place in the service appointed by the scald. And the scald is supposed to say, I invite you to repeat with me ten commands given by our early fathers. The first two are a little different. Thou shalt seek God in all thy ways. He led thy people from afar. He set their course and gave to them their holy guard and is their long home. Uh, the second is, Thou shalt do thy duty in thy guard in God, and it shall be thy rich reward forever. And I should mention, this will actually come back. One of his ideas was that every person had been given by Odin uh, what he called a guard in God. And that's G-A-R-D, like Garth. And it basically meant the work that you were appointed to do. And what you were supposed to do was exactly what your guard in God was. You were supposed to labor faithfully at whatever work had been set before you whatever was appropriate to your station or, you know, something like that. Not really big on social mobility. Anyway, the third commandment is remember great Odin's day to keep it holy. Is this starting to sound familiar? <laughs> it really is. Though thou shalt spend six days on things near, yet on the Sunday thou shalt give thee to thought on deeper things in God and life and death. So have thy fathers throughout the ages hallowed that day, and so mayest thou and thy children live. Okay, commandment four is honor thy great Lord, the friend of man, of justice, and of truth. And then five through ten are exactly the same as the familiar biblical ten commandments. Honor thy father and mother, shalt not steal, commit adultery, murder, bear false witness, or covet. So similarly, our early fathers did declare and direct who loved Odin and their people. 
Mm-hmm. I want to talk about four for a minute because four I find the most interesting. Mm-hmm. Honor thy great. So they talk about God and they talk about the great Lord, friend of man, of justice, and of truth. And from reading their further theology, you know, I think the first three are very much about Odin. I think the fourth one's about Thor, hmm. friend of man. Okay. I, I think that makes sense to me. Now, they would do all of these things, and instead of saying amen, they'd say, Woe, Tom. So we have these hymns in here, and they're now let me talk about they oh. had like this is like a full book here. Like they have infant naming, they have weddings, greetings, I mean, just pretty much everything you would think of that would be in a that would be in some sort of you know burial of the dead. So which page are we on? Uh, one hundred seven. It's hymn eighteen. Oh yes, this one. Okay, and you know it works pretty well with the. Um, yeah, what we we were singing it to uh, Old Hundredth, right? The doxology. Yes. Okay. You want to do this both? Go ahead, because I don't. It's it's not coming to me right okay. now. Okay. For the record, they don't actually have music. They're uh, making this so up. we're I've, I've kind of picked one from my distant childhood. Uh, one of his hymns. You have to come in with me at the very end. I will. Okay. Our fathers, sons of Asgard, fair to work and show their Lord's high will, came earthward as his presence there. Their children we his trust bear still. Do we want to do more? No. Probably not. Okay, you ready? Wotan. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, we did that. We did that. I, I find that, like I said, their order of service is so fascinating. So they're so looking at, and I'm looking at this in the short pamphlet, the eight-page pamphlet, but looking at their uh, morning service, it's led by a scald. Mm-hmm. But this one right here that I, I really... If we're looking at here, it's it's on page E in the short version. I'm not sure where it is, but I like this. I love how they refer to Thor as the vicar. Mm-hmm. God, by his vicar Thor, is with and in you. Lift up your hearts, all ye wherein you have done well. I'm having flashbacks right now. <laughs> lift up your hearts? <laughs> yes, yeah. lift up your hearts. I'm, I'm having like flashbacks to church in my childhood now. Right. Can I tell the joke? Yes. Okay. You, we can cut this out if it's not that funny. But there's a story of an Anglican priest who begins every service by saying, the Lord is with you. And the congregation says, and also with you. Until one day he gets up and there's this awful screeching sound. And uh, the uh, priest says, I guess there's something wrong with the mic. And the congregation says, and also with you. (laughs) Well, you know why you can't take Anglicans to uh, see Star Wars, don't you? May the force be with you. And also with you. <laughs> so let's do. The, let's read this down just below that. There is a, a call and response. Mm-hmm. Then the people shall kneel and the scalds say, O God, we glorify thee. And we raise our hearts to thy righteousness. The light of God descends upon us. That we may know of him the more. Yeah, I don't, yeah. I don't really want to go on any no, further. I mean, but... this, is, this is so... I, I did that because I just want to show... How Anglican this is. Right. So that we could do 52, where it says, The scald shall say, Seek ye his ways. His ways shall we seek. All beautiful are his ways. All sweetness is in him. Yes, this this rather has the cadences of my Methodist upbringing all, all over it, I'm afraid. 
This is like, mm-hmm. I feel like I'm back at my great grandmother's right. church. You know, some of this is probably very understandable simply because most heathens have converted from some other religious tradition. And we all bring to the table things that we, you know, learned at our parents' knees. It's, I guess, the first generation of people that were raised in heathenry is only just now starting to step up. Uh, but still, most of us come from somewhere else and tend to borrow styles of worship uh, that feel familiar. We're I mean, starting to see our third generation, actually. Okay. Well, um, that's good. Just at Hawk's Hearth Kindred up in Seattle, uh, north of Seattle. Mm-hmm. Uh, good folks. I'll plug Art's podcast in the notes. But they actually, uh, their third generation, mm-hmm. and Art's one of the old heathens. Like, okay. he's been around since the 80s. Their third generation... He just came of age a couple of years ago. Oh, so good. we're we're seeing third generation from these very okay. earliest nineteen seventies, nineteen eighties heathens. But we're still getting a lot of oh, people yeah. who who come in from. I'm a convert. Mm-hmm. Yeah, me and, too. But, you know, I our kids are going to be some of the first like solid generation of where they know other kids who are raised heathen, which mm-hmm. I think is amazing. Right. So um, I'm but a, any, yeah. anyway, it's probably not that surprising uh, that he borrowed so much of the look and feel of the Anglican Church. You know, to an extent, I think everybody does that. And he may not have had access to the historical sources. I haven't really been able to track down what books on the Norse culture he was reading, uh, but they seem to be very much the product of this, you know, 19th century romantic oh, uh, yeah. view of the of yeah. the Vikings. And so, you know, I can't really fault the man for coming up with a ritual to worship the old Norse gods that sounds a heck of a lot like Anglicanism with the serial numbers filed off. And he certainly was an Anglophile and very proud of his English ancestry. And, you know, so what could be more English than to worship in an Anglican style the old English gods? And, you know, that's like, you know, that's more English than, I don't know, beating up a soccer hooligan with the Union Jack wrapped around a cup of tea or something. Uh, cricket Sorry. bat. A cricket bat. Okay. okay. That works better. So. And then having a cup of tea. And it's interesting you bring that up because we're going to see this repeat again in the mm-hmm. 70s with the kind of next wave of the original kind of osotry. We're going to see this mm-hmm. repeat again where they take other ritual format that they were familiar with and apply it to the worship of the, of the gods. Mm-hmm. What that's going to be about. Yeah, we know mm-hmm. that one. This is where I will get to go on my rant about how much I hate Margaret Murray. But let's talk a little more about, I, I really want to talk a little more about what they believed and then try to tie it to some of the modern stuff we still see. I kind of want to pick out the baggage, if that mm-hmm. makes any sense. Sure. So they were definitely super in on, uh, one thing that I've seen several times back and forth in this particular book, and when I'm, I'm looking in what's called the statement, and I'm in the first guidebook. Oh, uh, yes. this Folks, this is probably the longest single sentence <laughs> it is. that anyone has ever published in the heathen literature. And I say that as somebody who edited our truth. Uh, this is 30 pages of a statement that begins, whereas. Yes. And then you have 30 pages of. And whereas, and whereas, and whereas. So, like, the first page pretty much is super heavy on the on the Jesus bashing mm-hmm. and Jew worship. I was raised in Christianity. 
Um, it's a, but it's a lot of criticism of, of Jesus, of how we are worshiping, you know, basically it's this kind of breakdown. Can I read some? Yes. And whereas, this is in capitals and boldface, by the way, and whereas the British people have been subtly taught by a great force that they are a conglomerate people of racial opposites and infinite diversity and dissimilarity with no racial identity, and that appearance and blood are nothing except they be dangerous lies, and that their customs and traditions, their holy places and their history and their heroes are negligible, but that the Jews are the, quote, chosen people of the great immeasurable the, and that Jewish customs, Jewish traditions, Jewish holy places, Jewish history, and the doubtful heroes of Jewry and Christian self-determination should be held up before the British when that God-seeking race seek their guards, their Lord, and their God and his Odin. <gasps> and whereas... <laughs> The Jews and persons representing the Lord of the Jews have power against us as we worship them and their Lord, despite the light and truth within us. And I'll stop there. Yeah, it goes on and it's it goes on. But it, it's definitely this if, idea that Christianity is a foreign religion on a biological mm -hmm. level to, in this case, the, the British people. Right. He writes in uh, The Odinist Religion. Uh, quote, our own racial ideals and traditions, not those of another, are our best guide to health and national strength. And this very much ties in with folkish ideology, the idea that your genes, you know, your descent group, your kindred fundamentally determine what you're supposed to be doing uh, spiritually, and that it's bad for you to worship a religion that's not in your DNA and in your blood and in your bones. Uh, maybe we can do a later podcast on why this is a bunch of fetid dingo's kidneys from a biological point of view. Because someone presented a paper on this. Yeah, we ought to talk about that later. We will. We will. Okay. Uh, I figure we'll get when we get into mm -hmm. uh, Stephen McNall and, and metagenetics. Right. We'll talk about that. Yeah, but yeah, met metagenetics isn't that original. No. Um, I mean, a lot of it comes through uh, A. Rudd Mills, probably by way of Elsa Christensen, who mm -hmm. we ought to talk about in a later edition. Yes. And that is, I think, absolutely interesting. I, I think that, you know, when you look at this, it, it very much is the same, the same kind of thing. And, you know, in uh, I'm looking at uh, Odinist religion overcoming Jewish Christianity. And the very beginning, he goes in this screed about how, you know, the Jews control everything. Mm -hmm. it, it's just like, it's like, yeah. it, this is like this. The beginning of this thing is like what I imagine reading a Glenn Beck book would be. Mm -hmm. it, it's a little crazy. Yeah. Um, why should it be that they are Jews? Why not Chinamen or Hindus? Because the religion of nations concern has been Christian, i.e. Jew worshipers, not Chinese or Hindu worshipers and self-renunciationists. Mm -hmm. You know, he's so focused on the British are worshiping the Jews, which I just, okay, sure, honey. Mm -hmm. it, the logic just fails me on that. But, like, literally, there's just pages about this. And he goes on and talks about, you know, this whole book here is very much trying to promote a very British identity, but also to separate that identity from that. And he does use a lot of the, something else that he does use in here in, in this particular book, he does talk somewhat about how, you know, the Chinese have their religion, and which is kind of a mm -hmm. 
Not exactly true. And the, and the Hindus right. have their religion, which, because back then it wasn't India trying to slam everybody in one country, but, you know, why shouldn't we? Somewhere he praises the Japanese for having avoided the snare of the Jews. I can't remember exactly which book that's in. Yeah. Uh, which I find, and I also kind of slightly laugh because, you know, he talks about the China and everything. There's a Jewish community in China, but mm-hmm. that's neither here nor there. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the stuff he wrote, it's slowly shifting into Aryan. The later his writings get, the more mm-hmm. Aryan he gets. You know, it's less about British and mm-hmm. more about Aryan. Right. Although he does, this is page 14 of uh, the first guidebook to the Anglican Church of Odin. He establishes four feast days for the four chief elements of the British people. Yes. uh, Who, oddly enough, bear names identical to three of the four patron saints of the British nations. On 23rd of April, you're supposed to hold a feast in honor of George. Yes. I assume this is St. George. Near 30th of November, you're supposed to hold a feast for Andrew. You know, St. Andrew, the patron saint of Scotland. And then close to the March 1st, you're supposed to hold a feast for David, uh, St. David being the patron of Wales. Yes. And then presumably for the Irish, he doesn't say you're supposed to worship Patrick. Uh, you're supposed to hold a feast day close to March 24th uh, to commemorate Brian. I don't know who Brian is. Well, uh, they made a movie about him. Oh. He kept getting mistaken for Jesus. Gotcha. And he ended up getting crucified. Gotcha, and, um, gotcha. Yeah. yeah he, he taught us the great hymn, Always look on the bright side of life. Yeah. So we're supposed to sing that, evidently, on the nearest Sunday to March 24th. Too bad we missed it this year. One thing that I did find interesting is I actually am not totally opposed to their views on, on sex. Mm-hmm. For the time, they are oddly sex positive. You know, they they kind of tear down the idea of the Christian view of sex being kind of repressive and there being ignorance about sex diseases and how you get them. But then, you know, and it talks about how sex is awesome and everyone should have it. Of course, only between men, men and women. And sorry, I've got a George Michael song stuck in my head now. Sex is natural, sex is good, and not everybody does it, but everybody should. For the time, I actually feel like this is something that I would argue is not in line with a lot of modern folkish and racist Mm -hmm. belief, because you see much more regressive, almost fundamental Christian, you Mm -hmm. you see a lot of ideas about sex and gender Mm -hmm. that I don't know that are quite the same here. The sense I've gotten from reading focus sources is that they're perfectly fine with sex as long as it produces lots of blonde-haired children. Yeah. Other types of sex, well, I'm not so sure. But then a couple of chapters later, it has this whole screed about marriage and how if you see a diseased person marrying another, then it must be a Jesus Christian wedding. Mm-hmm. If you see a mad person marrying another, then it must be a Jesus Christian wedding. Basically, this whole list of like bad people, Odinists when they marry must present a certificate of health. Odinists do not marry persons who are racially distant from them. Odinists don't marry in the name of all the that. But I mean, it, it's kind of fascinating. If the Japanese, Chinese, Indians, or other race ever overwhelm us, then the Odinists and the Odinists only will preserve our race and someday revive our nation. I think I saw that on a billboard somewhere. Mm-hmm. Right, um, right. For, for those of you who don't know, we do live in Arkansas, and we have around us these horribly racist billboards that pop up every once in a while. And Usually on Highway 65 south of Harrison. 
Uh, but occasionally on I-40 between Conway and uh, Morlton. Oh, lovely. Yeah. Yeah, so that's kind of like a little flashback there. Mm-hmm. So, so basically, from what I'm gathering from this, if you are an Odinist, there's a departure there also. I can't think from kind of like what we generally accept now, what's in the Havamal, you know, mm-hmm. the idea that it's very um, eugenicist. Mm-hmm. You know, that only the best of the white race should be marrying and producing babies. Their health means that health comes having a true attitude to God, a natural attitude, an attitude that realizes something of the nature of the self of the true place in Odin. So Odinists strive to improve the caliber of the race. So pretty much that would eliminate me from having kids. What about you? Um... You wear glasses. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, as far as my genealogist aunts and our DNA tests have been able to tell, I'm pretty much 100% Euro prime beef. Yeah. You know, old American colonial stock, most of it, but I'm sure they could find a reason. Yeah, the glasses would probably do it. Uh, and also with that... I mean, the, the glasses pretty much kept me from reproducing all through high school, which... Yeah. You know, probably was just as well. But anyway. But yeah, it, it definitely is very tied into eugenics, which I think is something we'll cover in the future, maybe to talk a little bit about that era. But, you know, th- that was a thing. And it was a very, eugenics was kind of not just a racist thing back then, though. It was pretty widely accepted, you know, mm-hmm. among even some people who would be seen as liberal now, like mm-hmm. Margaret Sanger who was one of the people who founded Planned Parenthood, embraced eugenics. Well, a lot of it, at least in, this is maybe jumping the gun a little bit, but in this country, the modern eugenics movement, one of the things that was triggering that was hysteria over immigration. uh, Because America was being flooded by people who didn't speak English and followed bizarre, strange, and savage religions like Catholicism. You know, the Irish, the Italians, the Poles, the Russians, uh, the Jews. And many of these people were actually not seen as white. When this uh, glorious old racist named Madison Grant published his book called The Passing of the Great Race, the great race in question wasn't whites. It was specifically English, Germans, and Scandinavians, the Nordics, who were getting overwhelmed by people we would now consider white but who were the one he really hated the most was the Alpines, which is basically, you know, Central European peasants, uh, Celts, French, and uh, Slavs, who are not fully paid up 100% members of white society. And hysteria about, well, the standard American line on immigration has always been, it's what made this country great right up until my ancestors got here, and then after that, they really should have pulled up the ladder. Yeah. So you have Benjamin Franklin freaking out about the Germans, Uh and then the English and the Germans freaking out about the Irish, and then the English, Germans, and Irish freaking out about the Poles, and now the English, Germans, Irish, and Poles are freaking out about the Mexicans. And And don't forget the Italians. Yeah, and the Italians are in there too, and in 50 years... The English, Germans, Irish, Poles, Italians, and Mexicans will all be freaking out about the Tajiks or whoever the heck the next wave is. Yeah. You're already seeing it some mm. with people freaking out about the Chinese mm-hmm. uh, because of birth tourism. But that's another topic. Something that really, really make, made me mad 
is reading this whole chapter he has where basically he blames if you're sick, if you're disabled, it's a spiritual condition. And that is very Christian. That's mm-hmm. very something that you hear a lot in. But I was at a, a Wiccan mixed pagan event a few years ago. And I was sitting in this workshop with a woman who I won't name her name, but she is a leader of a major pagan organization, well-respected, well-known author of many books. And she was talking about allergies. And she was talking about how, well, if you're allergic to pine trees, for example, there's something in the pine tree that symbolizes that's causing you to be allergic to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But it's the same Mm -hmm. idea that like... Wait, so like you're... If you're allergic to pine trees, you're pining for something? Well, or you're whatever. Pining for, you're pining for the fjords? I guess. Or like whatever the pine trees symbolize metaphysically. I don't mm. know. I kind of tuned her out after that because I'm like, um, no, that's not how this works. That's <laughs> not how any of this works. But it's definitely a huge thing here where he talks about Basically, if you're sick, it's your fault. If Odinists are never sick, Odinists are awesome. Odinists are like awesome and stuff, and we're just gonna never be sick. So, what about their beliefs on the afterlife? Well, I happen to have the uh, first guidebook open to the Order for the Burial of the Dead. And again, this is very, very Anglican funeral. Our brother's body now is all that is left of him in life as we best know it. Yet we do know the spirit and the life that used his body for his walking, seeing, hearing, and his many actions is now no longer where it was. His passing is a mystery, yet is not more so than his living. And if we go on a little bit, we are as children before the mighty powers beyond, nor are we wise enough to know the ways of God, but only that he is good to seek him as we may and do the duties that he giveth us. Let us not mourn as those who have no hope, but be as those whose souls have seen the might and the love of God. You could read that in a Christian service and nobody would even notice. No. But here we go. So you brethren and I owe our trusts on earth. Let us see to it that we discharge them so we all come at last unto fair Valhalla, where in Odin's home we mingle in lively peace and joyousness with those good ones who have gone before. So, you know, Valhalla, as far as I've been able to tell, is pretty much indistinguishable from the Christian heaven, where you'll be reunited with all of your good and noble friends. Yeah, the skald goes on to pray, And though we ask, we know we ask for that that thou and you do do for them that seek the Great One and his love. He kind of hit a flat note there. We thank and praise thee even as we ask. But thou, thou friend of man, thou and thy angels know and have compassion. Hail then, four and loved ones. So, yeah, he, he drops angels in here. Uh, Interestingly, he mm-hmm. also drops it in, in looking in his chapter about the, to those who have lost loved ones in the Odinist religion. He's got two points here. There's like two pages of why Christians' beliefs in the afterlife suck. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the Odinist as he dies doing good or being valorous is taken straight to his home by good angels. Mm-hmm. Val- parentheses, Valkyrie. Ah. Who wait for his coming. And then the Odinist goes where justice and love of his father's spirit and God says he naturally will be. Mm-hmm. What a man is, he is. Uh, his harvests go with him, which is interesting. Yeah. 
Um, I've got the same thing in the burial of the yeah. dead service. What a man is, he is. What good he has done, what good he has tried to do goes with him. One whose name is love knoweth him, and no fault is beyond his power to correct. All evil done must be repaid in God. None shall escape. The evildoer and the fool each must be rectified according to his sin and his error, yet ever there is compassion in God. And again, I can't really tell the difference between that and what you could hear in your standard issue Christian funeral. No, I, it does. Mm. It sound, I mean, really, it goes back to what I said in the beginning, where it's very copy-paste, take out God, Jesus, insert, or own form. Those that do well and are of honor and are true and have sought their God, their reward is certain and good and full of honor. Light shall be theirs. And the beauty of God and his Odin is their refuge and their heritage forever. Drop out the phrase, and his Odin, and that could come right out of an Episcopal funeral. Woten. Oh, right. <laughs> oh, I missed my cue. Yes. Woten. Yeah. Yeah, and it's really just interesting. And one of the other points, of course, they were super, something that I think really differentiates them from modern kind of more racist movements is mm -hmm. they were super anti-capitalism, like really anti-capitalism. You know, capitalism is the reason, you know, that we have all of these problems and, you know, that's mm -hmm. capitalism says all men are equal and that's clearly not the case. And, and you know who's in charge of capitalism? You know, it's them Jews. So, yeah, yep. this, this ties into the general anti-Jewish sentiment that colors all of his writings. But it's definitely, like I said, it's, a, it's interesting to read all these beliefs and to know that. So, looking forward, in kind of the more modern sense, mm -hmm. how do you think these writings have influenced where we are right now? Well, okay. He self-published uh, his work. He claimed that uh, at its height in the late 1930s in Melbourne, his ceremonies were drawing as many as 120 people. And he also had big crowds at, uh, he'd hold midsummer gatherings with, you know, bonfires and things like that on his land. I'm going to be honest here. Mm -hmm. I ain't never seen a, a gathering, like a local gathering of heathens for 120 mm -hmm. people. Right. Yeah, you, you have to take some of this with a grain of salt, yeah. but he claimed to have a fairly good-sized following. Problem was that in early 1942, the wartime Australian government detained him, kept him in a prison camp uh, for several months in pretty harsh conditions. And there's some debate among historians now as to to what degree that was justified. Australia does have basic protections for freedom of speech and religion. Mills's freedom was arguably violated. That being said, he was keeping company with some people that were advocating for collaboration with Japan, uh, who was, you know, threatening to invade Australia at the time. Right. So whether it was legally justified or not is not really a question I can answer. I'm not an Australian jurist. But he was released in December 1942. As far as we can tell, his church dissolved or went underground. He kept trying. He published his last book on Odinism in 1957. It was a booklet called uh, The Call of Our Ancient Nordic Religion. Yes. And that would pretty much have been that. I mean, his books never found much of a wide circulation. Uh, he did send a copy to Hitler. It's actually in the Library of Congress now. 
uh, because they ended up with a good chunk of his library. But he would probably have been forgotten if it hadn't been for an American Nazi sympathizer named James K. Warner, who in the 50s, who'd been casting around looking for an appropriate religion for National Socialism, and Warner had copies of Mills's publications, and he got disillusioned with them. I believe he would Warner would end up as I think he ended up as a minister in the Church of Jesus Christ Christian, which is a Christian church, but doesn't accept uh, anything about Judaism. Now, Jesus wasn't a Jew. That's almost up there with the the British of the Lost Tribe of Jews. Right. That, yeah, that there's works. a nexus there. But yeah. yeah, I think Warner ended up in Christian identity is another thing that they call it. But Warner passed his stash of Odinist writings to a uh, young woman who just emigrated from Denmark to Toronto by the name of Elsa Christensen. And she was inspired to start up a group called the Odinist Fellowship. It also got called the Odinist Movement. The name is not always consistent. And uh, she started publishing a newsletter in 1971 called The Odinist. Most of it was not very religious. Most of the early issues of The Odinist were entirely about politics, history, and society from a very right-wing viewpoint. But at least in the second issue, she was quoting Rudd Mills's words. She actually used the phrase, uh, guard in God. Yes. Right? Remember the, the task that God has set before you that you're supposed to work on and keep your eyes on your own paper and all of that. So it's ultimately through her that knowledge of Rudd Mills ends up trickling into the nascent heathen movement in uh, North America. Right. Uh, she cites him. She takes some in inspiration from him. I don't have that issue of the Odinist, but there was one in which she quoted his work uh, pretty intensively. And that's ultimately where Rudd Mills's long-term influence lies. The fact that Elsa Christensen picked up a copy of his work, realized that it dovetailed very well uh, with her political views. Right. And realized that... As far as I can tell, she was not particularly devout because, again, most of her uh, newsletter, The Odinist, is about po political and social stuff. She doesn't spend an awful lot of time talking about Odin. Oh, I actually came across, let me see, it's The Odinist issue 35. This is back in the 70s, uh, where most of the issue is all about Star Wars, uh, which had just come out in 1977. Yeah. And it's gushing with praise because Star Wars is a brilliant display of Aryan myth, which transmits Aryan heroic dynamism, Aryan mysticism, and Aryan theotechnics. Nice. Theotechnics. Yeah. That's yeah. Good. That's a good mm -hmm. word. I like that. May the force be with you as long as you're not Jewish or something like that. I May the I white know. force be with uh, you. Ah, yes. Right. <laughs> you know, and she, of course, was a huge influence on. Well,. Uh, there's this uh, Texas college student back in the 70s, ROTC cadet, and at least for a time head of his college's chapter of Young Americans for Freedom down at Midwestern University in the bustling metropolis of Wichita Falls, Texas, who's crazy about the Vikings, read these novels that fired his imagination, wants to be a Viking, and he starts publishing uh, this journal called The Runestone for a group of enthusiasts called the Viking Brotherhood. And the first issue consisted of 11 copies. 
and they were made on this god-awful ancient mimeograph machine. I don't know how many of our listeners will know what mimeographs were. Look on Wikipedia for those of you under the age of like 35. Right, exactly. Uh, So he sends this out, tries to get it distributed any way he can. Of course, in the absence of the internet, it's not that easy to build a following quickly. And in issue four, he happens to mention, hey, we've just found another group that's worshiping Odin based up in Toronto, and that happens to be Elsa Christensen's Odinist Fellowship. He starts reading her stuff. He's already pretty socially conservative. I mean, he's an ROTC cadet during the Vietnam War era, you know. Yeah. This is not some, you know, hippie tie-dye freak. He's not. But it's only about after then that his writing in The Runestone turns from basically just being a big Viking fanboy to getting increasingly caught up in political issues from a very conservative uh, side. And I suspect that some of that is Elsa Christensen's influence. And in case anybody didn't guess, I'm talking about Steve McNally. And we will have multiple episodes mm-hmm. on that coming up uh, in the future. He's but an, he is an interesting guy. I'll he, give him that. I, like I said, I think it's very fascinating. We have this, this situation where I didn't know who this person was until you... Well, you sent me that draft uh, that you're working on for the next edition of Our Truth. I had never heard of this guy. So now, other than a very brief message uh, mentioned in, I think, one of Edward Thorson's books. Mm-hmm. And it's like one sentence. It's not right. even, it's just like, and so to, to read this and see, it's it's really fascinating. This It also shows what, you know, what I've always suspected. We are the origin of our religion. Yeah, our origin of our religion in the English-speaking world is by a, you know, stone-cold Nazi mystic lawyer. That sounds like some sort of bad character class. (laughs) But uh, I will say, just to throw this out here, because this is just to kind of a final thought, as much as he talked about you must have children and white children and reproduce and this, that, and the other, Red Mills never had children. Mm -hmm. He didn't marry until he was in his 60s. I, I can't remember why. They were a couple for many years before they actually got married, and I can't remember the story behind that, unfortunately. I would think part of it would be his incarceration. That Well, that would tend to put the kibosh on wedding plans, but that was only for, that was for less than a year. Yeah. Her family might have objected or something like that. I, I can't, there's a story behind it, and I can't remember it off the bat. I will say there's another uh, that we didn't touch on that the Odenic Rite mm-hmm. places a huge importance on Rudd. Right. They actually have a feast day on the 4th of July mm-hmm. for him. He also heavily influenced the New Zealand Church of Odin. Right. Which is a creepy, like, far right. And I don't think it actually exists anymore. Uh, mm-hmm. As far as I can tell, it kind of disbanded in the early 80s. Well, the, the Odenic Rite of Australia was mm-hmm. actually founded as a separate organization from the Odinic Rite, which was based in England. And we can talk about them later. Right. They're, they currently describe themselves as a separate organization for organizational purposes, yet they're in full communion with the greater Odinic Rite. Kind of like the Episcopalians in the Anglican. Yeah, there we go again. 
And they've got, I think they currently own the copyright to uh, Rudd Mills' writings. Mm -hmm. Uh, They've reissued several of them. They've reissued some of the early writings of the founder of the Odinic Rite in England, uh, John Ewell. Yes. Or Yowell. I don't know. Uh, whatever his name is, we'll probably talk about him at a later yes. um, a later issue. He's he's an interesting guy too. But you know, you do see, even though, and, and I would even argue some of the things that I've read in here, I see in some of the stuff we even, mm-hmm. you know, you you see the borrowing, you see this idea of. I mean, I'll be honest. Part of the reason I came to heathenry was ancestry. Even though I am an inclusive Deck 127 heathen who thinks mm-hmm. anybody can be heathen, that is part of the reason I came to heathenry. I wanted a, something that tied into my ancestry. And I think that's that's a baggage that's still here that I think is kind of important mm-hmm. to address. So, I mean, that's it. That's uh, Mr. Alexander Rudmills. Born in 1885, died in 1964. The founder of the First Anglican Church of Odin. Also known as uh, Tasman Fourth, because mm-hmm. he was from Fourth Tasmania. Right, right. <laughs> so creative. <laughs> and makes me wonder where was Tasman the Third, Second, and First? Exactly. Mm-hmm. So if you liked it, subscribe. Check us out. We're on Twitter at, at Heathen History, and come back next time. We'll be covering yet another topic, and we are planning on doing our very first live show. So keep scheduled for details on that. We are. We talked about this. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. Anything you say. We talked about this like an hour ago. Oh, all right. This is what it's like here, folks. So, (laughs) for the Heathen History Podcast, I'm Lauren. And I'm Ben. Wassail, y'all. Wassail, y'all.